Well, please remain standing and let's take out our copy of God's Word and turn it to uh, the Gospel of His Son as recorded by Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 6 this morning if you would. And we will, it seems that we've been in Mark chapter 6 for quite a while. We will be wrapping up our look at that chapter this morning. We'll read verses 45 through the end of the chapter. So follow along as we hear what Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written for us this morning. Beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went upon the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, The people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it alone endures forever, O God. We pray that you would bless uh, our reading and our studying of it this morning. Uh, In all things, Lord, would you receive glory in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, once again, this morning as we come to these words, we come to look at another one of the most well-known of Jesus' miracles. And again, rightly so, for it substantially adds to this picture that Mark is building up in answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's a miracle that we're going to read about today that so clearly manifests the deity of Christ so clearly, so wonderfully, so powerfully that the theological liberals uh, denying the possibility of the things that it explains so clearly have gone to rather comical lengths to explain it away by natural means. They say that Jesus could not have walked 
on the water. And so they say, well, maybe he didn't actually walk on the water. It was just sort of an optical illusion. He was actually on the shore walking. uh, But uh, the way that he was and the place that he was and where the boat was, it just made him appear that made it appear as if he were walking on the water. Or that Jesus perhaps was walking on a sandbar out into the, to the lake that he uh, knew about. Uh, somehow the, the men who fished and sailed this lake all of their lives didn't know about it. Uh, but that's, that's just a couple of the, the ways that man has sought to downplay this and to explain it away. And while those so-called scholars see much less here than meets the eye in the record of these verses. Uh, I think we today, by God's grace, are going to see that there's actually more than meets the eye in this record, more than meets the eye in what is going on here as we look at the record of Jesus walking on the water. And I hope, I pray that you will come away from our time this morning uh, worshiping Christ for what you learn and with a a more sure and confident trust in him in whatever uh, you may be facing, whatever you may be going through at this time. In your bulletin is an outline if you like to take notes and follow along according to the outline you have it there. We're going to begin by looking at the first thing that we see here which is a praying Savior, a praying Savior. If you still have your Bibles open, which I sincerely hope that you do, and if you look just before where we began our reading this morning in verse 45, you'll see that this event takes place right after that other well-known miracle of our Lord, the feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. And there's a connection between that event and this event, a one that is intentional as Mark records it. In fact, if you noticed at the end of our passage this morning, there is a a reference to the loaves. That's a reference to to this previous uh, episode when Jesus fed the 5,000. But the connection is also important here at the beginning. And actually, what we are looking at today follows right on from that episode of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you look at verse 45, he says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, we've, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark so far, we've had many opportunities and taken them to make much of Mark's use of this word immediately throughout his gospel uh, as a means of pacing, as a means of showing that Jesus is a man of action and, and moving from one thing to the next. But this use of the word immediately strikes us as being a little bit different and, and actually conveying here a, a particular sense of, of urgency. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. And the sense of the statement is that he gives an order to the disciples, that they were not quite ready to leave, that he gives them this this command to do something uh, that's contrary to what they were wanting to do. They were wanting to stay there with him, but he immediately put them on this boat and said to go over to the other side to Bethsaida. Why is that? 
Why is it that Jesus so quickly, immediately sends them away while he stays behind at the the tail end of this other miracle uh, to dismiss this crowd? This is the crowd that had been gathered and had been fed by Jesus. I think the reason that he does this is actually in something that Mark doesn't include here but John does in his record of what's going on here in the feeding of the 5,000. Because in John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000, John adds that after the miracle is complete, after the people have all eaten their fill, after the 12 baskets full of leftovers have been collected, that something happens. Uh, The people, having witnessed this, this great sign and this great miracle, In John chapter 6, proclaim, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And as John records it, they they are all worked up about this. And in something of a, I guess, a, a premature preview of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, of course, that happens at the end of his ministry, they decide that Jesus is the Messiah. Literally, they say that he is the prophet Speaking of the prophet that Moses had spoken about way back in Deuteronomy 18, that God would raise up a prophet like him, after him, that the people would listen to him. All as a part of the the stream of messianic expectation. And here the people think that this is the one who has come, that Jesus, because of what they saw, they're convinced that he is this prophet, that he is the Messiah who was to come. Now, to them... In their mistaken view of things, that means that they believe that Jesus, as the Messiah, has come to be a political military leader in the, in the wise of, of King David, in the likeness of King David, and that he has come to free them from Roman rule, and they're very excited about the possibility. But John tells us that Jesus knows what they have in mind that he knows what they're thinking. And John 6.15 tells us that, that Jesus knows that they are about to come and make him king by force. And we might add that the disciples, both now and later, are not themselves never quite immune from entertaining that idea. Even as they're with Christ, even as they learn uh, of what he actually comes to do, they're never quite, they never quite divorce themselves from this, this false idea of a, a physical, political Messiah. Uh, remember in the, in the book of Acts, after the ministry of Jesus, after he's been crucified and been resurrected and has been with them teaching, in the, in the moments before Jesus is going to ascend back into heaven, that the the disciples ask him when he says uh, that he is going away, the disciples ask him in Acts 1.6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So see, they still still have that idea, and certainly the crowd has it here, as John tells us. And so to to sort of quell this rising uh, messianic uh, expectation here, and to, to quell the rising nationalistic fervor of the crowds and to keep the disciples from potentially feeding into that or being fed by that, 
Jesus immediately, as that raises up, as John records it, he immediately wants to send the disciples away, to get them away from that. And he stays behind, Jesus does, and, Mark says, dismisses the crowd. Certainly with some words to them that are not recorded um, to tamp down that, that fervor that was rising. But there's one more thing to point out here, and it's in verse 46. It says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And it's interesting that Mark, in his gospel, only records Jesus specifically praying three times. Uh, Once, right before he chooses the twelve that he will call apostles, here and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times that are all three associated with important crisis points or events in his ministry. Here he goes perhaps to pray as as the Son of Man who was tempted in all ways as we are. Perhaps he, he prayed in regard to the temptation of the willingness of this crowd to offer a different path, a different meaning of the kingdom that he has come to establish. And certainly when he went to pray, he would have prayed for his disciples in regard to that same thing, that the Lord would keep them Uh, that he would teach them what it really means that Jesus has come as the Messiah. Because he was the Messiah, just not in the way that the the Jews and, and to a certain degree the disciples were even thinking of him. Now, we are not told explicitly the subject of Jesus' prayer as he goes up onto the mountain to pray. So the subject of his prayer, as I've just laid it out, the possibility is conjecture. And we should take it as conjecture. But that the crowd had intended to come and to make Jesus king by force and of his intervening to stop that and of his sending his disciples away in connection with that, that is the record of Mark and the record of John that they give us. So Jesus sends the disciples away from this and he sends them away to go to Bethsaida. He stays, he dismisses the crowd and then verse 46 says that he went up on the mountain to pray. Let's be reminded again this morning as we have been in various other places here in Mark's gospel of how important prayer was to our Lord in his ministry. And how he would often engage in it. Mark only records three times. But the other gospel writers record other times and say that he would often uh, rise early and to go out and to pray. Prayer was critical to the Lord. And here's a lesson for us. Because if prayer was important to Jesus, who was God, whose will was perfectly in line with the will of the Father who never sinned, who always had his mind and his spirit set to do the will of God fully and completely, who loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind, who loved his neighbor as himself. If prayer was important to him, beloved, how much more important should it be for us in our weakness, in, our, in none of those things are true of us that were true of Christ. So how much and how important 
should prayer be to us? How much should we be people of prayer? And we see here at the beginning of this passage that we have a praying Savior. We also are going to learn here this morning about a contrary wind. A contrary wind. So the disciples set sail. Jesus is on the land, and he's still there. Verse 47 says he was alone on the land when, Mark says, evening comes. So after the day is done, after all of this, with the, this is the same day of the feeding of the 5,000. After that is all over, after the, the disciples have left, Jesus has, has gone and prayed. It begins to get dark. Jesus is on the land, and the boat, the boat was out, Mark says, out on the sea. Literally, it says, it was in the midst of the sea. John tells us that they had rowed three or four miles. And that brings us to verse 48 here. Which starts out by saying, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. As they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee in the evening, up comes these winds that are so common in this area. As the wind blows down from the upper elevations north of the Sea of Galilee through that uh, canyon area of the inlet into the Sea of Galilee on the north shore, Uh, which is very close to where they are are rowing, and out onto the sea. So much so, the, the wind comes up so much so, that the men on the boat now are not sailing their ship, they are rowing their ship. They have taken to the oars. And Mark says that they were making headway painfully. Other translations say that they were straining at the oars. One Translation a little bit more colorfully expresses it like this. They were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. Now, there is no mention here of them being in danger of sinking, like in the the storm that they had experienced earlier, which was on the same body of water, but they are very clearly struggling to maintain control of this boat. And are likely, as we'll see, being blown quite a way off their intended course. And from what we see later, are. It's an interesting fact that all of these things coalesce together. Because we find as we read the Gospels that when the disciples are are separated from Christ, from his visible, immediate oversight, that bad things always seem to happen. Whether it's physical danger like this or they run up against something like um, after the transfiguration or during the transfiguration, they are not able to to cast a demon out of the son of a man. And Jesus has to deal with that when he comes. And here, the disciples are away from Christ. They're on the sea. And the sea is symbolically a place of trouble, a place of chaos. They are in the darkness. It's now at night. Wow, isn't that a a perfect picture of our own situation at times in kind of word pictures? All of those things in our lives sort of come together and can make us struggle and can make us fearful. 
And as the disciples here, we read, are making slow progress against the wind and against the waves. That too can be seen as a picture of our own slow progress in our lives. Because the Christian life is often slow progress, isn't it? We are... We are beset by winds of various kinds that can impede our spiritual progress. We are beset by difficulties of many different kinds, many different enemies, many different impediments, our own sin, our own weakness. We walk and we struggle against headwinds at every seeming point, making our progress difficult and making it slow. Amen? And if I can push the metaphor a little more, the further that we get away from Christ as they rode away from the shore, when we avoid the means of grace, when we're not in our word, when we're not, or in God's word, when we're not in church, when we're not thinking of these things, when we're not in prayer, the more we drift and the more trouble we get and the harder our headway becomes. But beloved, notice something here that is immensely comforting to us and immensely comforting to the disciples. Maybe you noticed it. Did you notice it right at the beginning of the verse? Verse 48. It begins by saying, And he saw. Where is Jesus? He's on the land. Where are the disciples? They're out in the middle of the lake, in the darkness. And yet, he saw that they were making headway painfully. This isn't to be explained by mere physical sight. This is a statement that combines really both aspects of Jesus' deity and his compassion for the disciples. He sees in a way that could not be natural and he sees with obvious compassion on his disciples because we see that at the end of the verse we read that he came to them as a result of seeing that they were in trouble. And he sees distance, darkness, neither of those are impediments to his caring concern for his disciples. On the Sea of Galilee or in the lives of his people today. Whatever you're facing, whatever trial, whatever impediment to your progress in your walk as a Christian, whatever enemy, whatever darkness, whatever trouble, beloved, know that he sees. He who keeps you does not slumber or sleep. He is not distracted. His sight uh, is not shortened. But he sees everything that you're going through. And he has compassion on you. He cares. And he sees here that the disciples are proceeding with difficulty. Another thing, though, that's interesting is that, and I think instructive for us here, is that While he sees, 
And certainly he continued to keep his eyes on the little boat. But he doesn't immediately go to them. He watches and he's always in control, but he doesn't come to them right away. He comes to them in his time. He waits. Mark tells us here that he first sees them in the evening. And even though that's a very general term, the Greek term is that that can be broadened out, it is very difficult to equate it with the very clear and specific time reference that Mark gives us as to when Jesus goes out to them, which Mark says in verse 48, the middle of it, he says, about the fourth watch of the night he came to them. Now this is using a Roman figuring of time and the Romans divided the time between 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. into four sections, four watches. And the fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning. And Mark says that that is when Jesus goes out to them. So they, Jesus lets them row for a while. He watches, but he comes in his time. But it is then, it is in that fourth watch that Jesus does come. He comes to the aid of his disciples, and he comes to manifest his identity to them in a very clear way. That's what's going on here. And we see it as we look at the third thing which you want to see, which is a divine encounter. So now here in the middle of verse 48, we really come to the the crux. We come to the high point of this passage of Scripture. And hopefully we will see some things here that you may not have noticed before. And even on the surface, pun intended, we see an amazing revelation of the, the power of Christ and of his dominion over the creation, of his authority over the natural laws which everything in creation must obey. Mark says here, somewhat matter-of-factly, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, walking on the surface, walking on the water. This is not an illusion, as I mentioned, some would have you to think. It's not a trick. This is the divine Son of God doing what only He could do. To walk as sure-footedly and easily on water as He would on dry land. There's only one other who was ever mentioned who was able to do that. And it's in this episode, though Mark doesn't record it, John does, It's when, in the midst of this, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus says, come on. What does Peter do? He takes a few steps. That's the only other time. That's the only other person. That's the only other situation as God, Christ, called him and sustained him. And you know what happens. Peter gets his eyes off of Christ and gets his eyes on the waves and on the storm and immediately begins to sink. But this is something that only Christ can do, that only God can do. 
And what is their reaction to it? The disciples' reaction. Well, Mark tells us, and remember that, that Mark's primary source of information, other than, of course, the Holy Spirit, was the Apostle Peter, who was one of the twelve, who was there, who was on this boat in this sea on this night. And Mark's record in verse 49 is that when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. On the rough sea, in the middle of the night, perhaps with some illumination from the moon, to see a man walking on the surface of the water is, I'm sure, one of the last things that you would expect to see. So when they do see it, they give in to their imagination as to what they're seeing, grasping for some sort of explanation. They think, Mark says, that it was a ghost. Phantasma is the word. A phantasm, a phantom, an apparition, or as here, a ghost. And their reaction is that they cried out. That is in fear because it says that they saw, all saw him and were terrified. But Jesus, of course, had not come to frighten them. But he came to rescue them. He came to comfort them. And additionally and primarily to teach them something, which we'll look at in just a moment. But first, let's consider the fact that he did, in fact, come to rescue them and to to comfort them. Their reaction, their, their fearful, terrified reaction and misidentification of Jesus as a ghost is met not, even, not by a rebuke even, but by their tender-hearted, loving, caring master who saw them from the shore and came to them. And he, Mark says, again, immediately spoke to them in such a lovely, loving, reassuring way. His word to these terrified disciples is, verse 50, take heart, It is I, do not be afraid. Be of good courage, he says. And let's be reminded once again that the most often repeated command in Scripture is this one, do not be afraid. And one of the most repeated assertions of God's people is, I will not fear. Psalm 56.11 says, In God I trust, I will not fear. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Christ speaks to us, Christian, words of comfort, words of encouragement, In the midst of our struggles, through the scriptures, he speaks to us and says to us in the midst of whatever we're going through, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And Jesus then, 
after speaking to them and and allaying their fears, again demonstrates his divine power over creation, over the seas, over the winds that stir up the seas. In the middle of verse 51, or the beginning of verse 51, it says he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And then once again we're told that they were utterly astounded. To which Mark adds... If you look there, this rather cryptic explanation that they were astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. Now, where is that coming from? We'll look at that in a moment. But it says that their hearts were hardened. Now, I'm going to explain that, as I said this last bit to you. But I want to do it as part of, look, as part of looking at three things in these verses that give us some insight as to what is really going on here. What is Jesus wanting to drive home and to teach, really, to the struggling disciples in the boat and to us this morning? Why why Jesus, in his divine knowledge, sent them out onto the sea, why he allowed the wind to whip up the way it did, And, of course, by now we know that he has authority over the elements. As the disciples said back in chapter 4, even the wind and the sea obey him. Why did he allow that? Why he waited and why he came to them when he did and how he did, particularly. What is this revealing? What is Jesus revealing about himself to the disciples? Well, let's start with this question of why did he come to them the way he did? Why did he walk on the water? He could have just calmed the sea from the shore, couldn't he? Why did he walk on the water? Well, let's ask this, as we did a few moments ago. Can anyone else walk on the water? Well, certainly no human can walk on the the water on their own. Some of us can't even swim on top of the water. But the Bible, in several places, is very explicit that there is someone who can walk on the water. Let me have you turn your Bibles to Job chapter 9. Keep your finger here because we'll be right back. Job chapter 9. Now, here in Job chapter 9, in the verses that we're going to be looking at at the beginning here, Job is responding to one of the speeches from one of his friends, And he is explaining how ludicrous it is for anyone to try to contend with God or to try to argue a case against God. And in that argument here in chapter 9, he lays out a picture of the power and the sovereignty of God to do what he wants to do and to do what only he can do. So verse verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, 
who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chamber of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Stop there. Now part of that description of the almighty creator is this in verse 8. He says that God is he who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And that word that the ESV has translated there, trampled, means to tread on, to walk on. He is the one. This God who does all of these other things, who is so mighty that no one can approach him and answer him and say to him, what have you done? He is the one who walks upon the water that he has made. Now, his sovereignty is seen in several places in the Old Testament in regard to the sea, which he makes a path through. So who can control the seas? Who can even walk on them, as Job says? Well, the one who created them, and no one else. That is who has come to the disciples this night to relieve them and to comfort them in their distress. And you can go back to Mark. By Jesus coming and walking on the water, he is revealing who he is. He is showing his disciples that this one is God himself. Second, in Mark's description here of Jesus' revelation to the disciples is this at the end of verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them. And said, take heart, it is I, be not afraid. Let me draw your attention to that middle phrase, it is I. Don't usually see it translated this way, but what Jesus said and what is in the Greek is the term ego eimi, I am. And that is the Greek translation, really, of the personal name of God as he revealed it to Moses. I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And so as Jesus says that to his disciples, he is showing them, he is explaining to them that the one who is standing before them on the surface of the sea, no less, not only walks where only God walks, but has himself the name of God, the I Am. Again, this is a revelation of the deity of Christ. And then finally, now, and and as we read this this morning, perhaps you thought, well, maybe he will, uh, the pastor will address this, this very strange comment in verse 48, where we read that he came to them walking on the sea, And at the end it says, he meant to pass by them. Now there are several explanations that have been offered to explain that phrase. None of them, or most of them, not very good. Some say that he was being playful with the disciples and that he was planning on going and meeting them on the other side of the the lake and jumping out perhaps and saying, aha, I beat you. 
Some say that, no, what, what he means is that he came alongside of them. Or perhaps that he appeared to the disciples to pass by. None of those really fit. The only thing that does is to recognize that this is not another reference to the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And it fits right in with these other two things that we've seen. There are three times, three main references in the Old Testament where we read about God passing by someone. Not passing over, this is not, the, not the Passover, but passing by someone. Can you think of them? As soon as I said that, I bet the first one came to your mind. And it's in connection, as so much in, the, in this uh, gospel is, uh, in connection with Moses. This time it's in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses speaks to God in verse 18 of Exodus 33 and says to God, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responds like this. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Three times in that promise, God says that he will pass by, and by doing so, will reveal his glory. And that's fulfilled down in the next chapter in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God's glory was revealed by the Lord as he passed by Moses. The same thing happens or something similar happens in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah, poor Elijah, he was out complaining to the Lord that he was the only remaining faithful man in Israel. But remember God's reply to that? He told him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, he says, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And you know the story. You know that the Lord himself there proclaimed his glory to Elijah. Not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in a whisper. But it was still the glory of Yahweh that was revealed as the Lord passed by. In two major Old Testament uh, epiphanies, manifestations, or theophanies, 
He is described as displaying his glory to men as he passes by or by passing by. The third one, uh, let me return you to Job chapter 9. You don't have to turn back there. Earlier we saw God show his glory by the description of him as the one who treads on the water, on the waves. Well, we read down through verse 10, but the next two verses in describing God and his glory and his magnificence goes on and says, Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away who can turn him back. Who will say to him, what are you doing? In Job's description, he says, he passes by me. Again, as a description of the glory of God. But he says, I see him not. He's saying there, God moves, God works his plan. He displays his glory in many ways. But, but he is, uh, Job is saying, evasive in that Job cannot perceive him uh, as to present his case to him. Beloved, back in Mark, on the Sea of Galilee, that night, the Lord, Yahweh, I am, passed by, and they did see him. God said to Moses, you will only see my back because my face may not be seen. Now, in Christ, to the disciples on the boat, they saw the face of God in the face of Christ who had come on the waves, as only God can. The I am, the name of God, had come to rescue them. Jesus said, he who has seen me, what? Has seen my Father. So Mark 6 here is a powerful revelation of God, revelation of Christ as God. An epiphany, a theophany. But then this question must come up, why were they afraid? How could they have been afraid? Knowing who Jesus was, just having that revealed to them. Well, that's the point. They didn't get it. That brings us to a sad evaluation. They didn't understand that Jesus was God. In spite of all that they had heard, in spite of all that they had seen, they still weren't grasping that truth. That's the point of verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They were utterly astounded when the wind and the sea grew calm when he got into the boat. But they'd forgotten about the loaves. They'd forgotten about what had just taken place. They should have learned from what happened that previous day now that this one with them was, is the true bread coming down from heaven that he was God himself. That's what Jesus demonstrated so clearly in the feeding of the 5,000. The one who fed the crowds, the one who walked on the sea and calmed the sea was God himself and they didn't get it. Why? Because it says their hearts were hardened. They weren't there yet. Why should they take heart? Why should they not be afraid? Well, because the one that was walking on the waves was not a ghost, but it was God Almighty walking by, revealing his glory to them. But their hearts were hardened. 
so that they didn't get it. Because like the crowds, they saw Jesus as one who did great deeds and fed empty bellies and walked on the water and calmed the seas, but they didn't understand. Beloved, let us pray that our hearts are not hard like that. And let us note from this fact that mere familiarity with Jesus and his work does not automatically bring one to faith. But that each of one of us must believe. Jesus will rebuke the crowds the next day, we'll read, because he knew that they followed him just to benefit from the miracles. But he calls them as he calls us this morning by saying, and this again is from John's record, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Finally, let's look briefly at the continuing ministry. This is verses 53 through 56. And here we can look at this very briefly because this really is just a summary statement that Mark gives. He's given us two other ones, one in chapter 1, verse 35, one in chapter 3, verse 7, and now he gives us another summary of of Jesus' ministry through this time. He tells us, first of all, in verses 53 through 55, what happened when they came to shore. Not, as it turns out, in Bethsaida, but on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee in an area called Gennesaret. And Mark tells us, as we read, that they repeat the usual procedure and bring the sick from all around to be healed. As soon as they see Jesus is there, they bring the sick. They look for the miracles. And then Mark, in verse 56, broadens out by saying there that wherever he came, In villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. You see that Jesus continues to minister. Jesus continues to heal. And the fact that the last word of this chapter is a word that refers both to physical healing, physical deliverance, and to spiritual salvation reminds us that Jesus and his ministry is busy at both. And he continues to be today. He continues to heal people today according to his will, his method, his timing, and he continues to save people today through the faithful preaching of his word and the proclamation of this Christ who is God in the flesh, the God who walks on water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son, who is God, to take on our nature in order that he might redeem us. We thank you, Lord, for this this event, this record of this event, of how Jesus revealed his deity so clearly. We thank you for your, your word that from beginning to end points us to Christ. And we pray, Father, that, that everyone here would follow where your word leads, to Christ, and that we would trust him, that we would 
put our faith in him, that we would rely on him, that we would understand that he sees, that he sees us in our troubles, he sees us in our our difficulties. And he comes to us to minister comfort and care and deliverance to us as he reminds us that he is God. May we worship him this day. In his name we pray, amen.